The Avengers. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Earth's mightiest heroes type thing. Avengers, time to work for a living. That's my secret. I'm always angry. I am on the side of life. You get hurt, hurt him back. You get killed, walk it off. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. I'm your host, Andrew, and I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers. Welcome to episode 92 of Some Assembly Required, your podcasting adventure into the annals of Earth's mightiest heroes, the Avengers. This episode, we are taking a look at Avengers number 87, Look Homeward, Avengers. This issue is written by Roy Thomas, pencils by Sal Bosema, inks by Frank Giacoya, letters by Mike Stevens, and it comes to us in April of 1971. Taking a look at our cover, this is a bold cover. Generally speaking, I really like it. This is obviously a Black Panther-centric issue, and he is front and center on this cover. The presence of the other Avengers, though, reminds us that this is still a team book, which is nice. The yellow and orange backgrounds really pop, but I would have liked to have seen some additional detail in the backgrounds, but maintaining the same color palette. I think that yellow and orange background is really what makes this issue stand out, at least from the cover, and so I wouldn't want that to go away. But I would like to see a little bit more definition and detail in the jungle setting. I think you could do some fun, cool looking things with that. So diving into the meat of our issue, returning from their recent dimension hopping adventure, the Avengers settle down for some well-deserved relaxation. While the general tone around the mansion is cautious, one Avenger can't help but be distracted in their newfound downtime. Questioned about it by Iron Man, Black Panther admits that he is suffering from homesickness, that most common of maladies. So once again, we start off this issue in Avengers Mansion, and much like he was in our previous issue, Vision is an epic buzzkill. Having said that, we do see a nice reference to Avengers number 58, referring to the fact that even an android can cry. So I like that little callback. It's touches like that that, as a dedicated fan, really appeal to me because they are otherwise a throwaway line. But if you're a fan and you've read all of the previous issues, then it means something to you. So it doesn't take away from someone's enjoyment of the book if they don't know what it means, but it definitely adds to someone's enjoyment if they do know what it means. So while Goliath makes a really nice quip there, his response to Black Panther's homesickness is pretty cringeworthy. It may be well-intentioned, but it definitely comes off as offensive. The fact that Goliath is offering to buy him a tsetse fly, which is a very stereotypical jungle pest, at least stereotypical from the idea of someone who's probably uninformed. It's a name that stands out, so you just kind of grab for it. I appreciate Goliath's intent. His execution, though, needs work, which is a fairly common problem of Goliath in this era, especially the Hawkeye Goliath. It is, however, nice to see that Thor gets how Black Panther's feeling, because of the two of them, they probably have the most in common. They are both of royal blood. They are both 
outsiders in New York. They are outsiders kind of on the team and they both are far from home and either don't get back there or don't get back there anywhere near often enough. So Thor is definitely someone who can understand how Black Panther feels. Thankfully, he's not the only one because in an effort to help their teammate, Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch encourage Black Panther to tell them about his home because they've never been. So with this, Black Panther begins to regale the Avengers with the story of how he became Black Panther, the legendary protector of Wakanda. This is a great change of subject by Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver. And although Black Panther sees through their ruse and decides to take things in his own direction, he's able to enjoy this. You know, he always enjoys doing his own thing, but he takes their suggestion and their hint and goes with it, but does his own thing with it, Does makes it his. And I think that adds to the story. And it also, as we'll see by the end of this, helps him deal with his homesickness a bit. So as son of the great chief T'Chaka, T'Challa was groomed from birth to follow in his father's footsteps. Soon after sharing the secret of vibranium with his son, T'Chaka is killed by Claw. Refusing to give him the vibranium that he sought for his sound transformer, Claw orders his men to cut the chief down. So the initial image we see of T'Chaka, it's not quite Jack Kirby. And although there are pieces that are kind of aping Kirby style a little bit, mostly in T'Chaka's shield, I would say this is a very impressive image. It, like I said, it's not quite Kirby, but it's close and it's not overdone, right? When we talked about how much I don't like when people try and ape Kirby's style, it's because they do too much. Like Archon's Planet, where there was just so much that could be done. The shield is just enough, especially on this page. It doesn't take up that much space and it's well done such that you definitely feel like it is invoking the style of Kirby, but that Sal Buscema accepts that he's not Jack Kirby and that he's not trying to do the whole page as Jack Kirby. I'm also pretty keen on the color palette they choose for T'Chaka because it invokes a wonderful sense of a setting sun. And Africa, much like where I'm originally from, a phoenix, is known for beautiful sunsets. So I like I understand what that color palette looks like. And I think they do a really great job of capturing that with those colors. So here, the backstory that we're given makes it look like Wakanda is a fairly stereotypical native culture at the time of Claw's first appearance in the country. Now, in the future, I don't think this is really the case. And it's my understanding is that it is more portrayed as a culture that has a more traditional lifestyle, being in harmony with nature and embracing their unique culture, but also harmonizing with their advanced technology, much like we see in the Black Panther film. That real, that's really a, a more modern take on Black Panther and on Wakanda. And again, not just in the film, but in comics as well. Still being a young man, T'Challa is sent away for his schooling while the kingdom is ruled over by Mbaza, the witch doctor and his father's most trusted advisor. Accompanying him on his journey is Mbaza's son, Batumba. For years, the pair are inseparable, studying and competing with one another, but remaining close friends. After graduation, the pair return to Wakanda so that T'Challa may finally claim his throne. We get a nice little training education montage panel. It's them performing science and competing in track and field and swimming. A little bit of 
flirtation going on and graduating from college. But honestly, my biggest takeaway from this is Batumba's Billy D. Williams style mustache that although it's a decade too soon for Empire Strikes Back, I really dig. It is very 1970s and it is very, very smooth looking. Of course, much like Billy D. Williams, but I, I think it's a good look for this character and it helps differentiate the two gentlemen more than the art sometimes uh, lends itself. On his arrival, T'Challa is greeted by Mbaza and immediately must begin the trials that will prove he is worthy of succeeding his father as chief. First, he must face off against a half dozen of the best warriors, a challenge he quickly competes, though a lesser man would have fallen before any one of his foes. Next, T'Challa must hold a vigil in the Temple of the Panther God. Again, having successfully completed his task, T'Challa is led into a gigantic panther statue where he finds the costume of the Black Panther. Donning the suit, T'Challa emerges to the cheers of an assembled crowd and is ready to face his final trial. T'Challa must travel to the Great Plateau and obtain the rare heart-shaped herb. If successful, T'Challa must then eat the herb in order to gain the powers of the panther. With this, T'Challa sets out to fulfill his destiny. In a few of these panels where Black Panther is proving his worth against a number of warriors in the tribe, a few times it actually looks like there are more than the six warriors that Mbaza specifies. However, on a careful count, we find that there are in fact the right number. During the fight, some of the limbs kind of go in odd directions, making them seem like they're extra, but I love this level of consistency. It It's important to me. I have OCD, and when things like this aren't quite right, it drives me absolutely nuts. So I appreciate them making this consistent 15 years before I was ever born. Thank you. So when Black Panther enters the statue, he states that he goes in not knowing what would be in there. But then in the next panel, he says that he found exactly what Mbaza told him would be there. So I want to know which one it is. Did he not know what he was going to find in there or did he know what was going to find in there? We go back to the consistency thing. They're literally inconsistent from one panel to the next. Finally, this is our first mention of the forbidden heart-shaped herb, which will grant Black Panther his abilities. At least it's the first mention in Avengers. As things go on, obviously this becomes more a deeper part of the Black Panther lore, but right now, this is our first introduction to the idea. Through jungles and swamps and up sheer cliffs, T'Challa overcomes any and all obstacles that cross his path. Just as his journey is coming to an end, however, T'Challa hears unexpected voices in the distance. On further investigation, he discovers a small expedition from the Advanced Idea Mechanics, or AIM for short. So here we see a great page of quest montage. And I don't mean that ironically. I mean, this is a really good way for us to fairly quickly move through the major points of T'Challa's journey without really wasting a lot of page space on it. And it just, it works. Now, to be perfectly honest, I actually want even a little bit more of this. It is one page long currently, and I could have gone with two pages, uh, two page side by side, I think would work best. And the reason I think that would work best is because here we have 
the first of two major page flip reveals and i would absolutely want to preserve that reveal right speaking of this reveal this one i was definitely not expecting and this is the introduction of aim to the story it almost throws you out of the story because it is so much different than what we've been dealing with. This is very much so far been a coming of age slash quest kind of story. And when AIM shows up, it's an unexpected twist. But for those of you who have listened to me for a while, you guys know I like this kind of surprise, this kind of twist. It keeps me on my toes. It makes the issue seem not of a formulaic design. When you throw in a twist like this that I'm not expecting, it makes me think you're actually putting effort forth in writing a story. I also love the skewed panel design that we get on this page, on this this reveal, because it seems to fit Black Panther's sense of surprise and confusion, especially because it's overlaid over a background of a jungle scene. So you have what Black Panther is expecting to find in a normal framed up panel and then several degrees off kilter and off center is what he truly finds here. And it, it really just matches the skewed and, and off center feeling that this kind of discovery would have. The AIM team busily loads up a shipment of refined vibranium for transport back to their headquarters. As T'Challa contemplates the ramifications of his discovery, he himself is discovered by a hidden camera left behind by AIM. The young king is quickly ambushed by the now-alerted AIM squadron. So I like that AIM gets the drop on Black Panther. He's literally facing off against a foe he knows absolutely nothing about, so it makes sense to make him fight at a disadvantage. Now having said that, he's obviously a better fighter than these AIM minions, and we see that they are really no match for Black Panther in kind of a one-on-one -on -one situation. Although surprised and outnumbered, T'Challa quickly takes the advantage and shows off the incredible power now under his control. His speed, strength, and agility end up proving no match for the technological wonders of AIM, however, and he is soon brought down by their portable Sonatron. While he recovers, Black Panther demands to know who is responsible for this brazen act of thievery. The traitor is soon revealed to be none other than T'Challa's close friend, Batumba. In the process, AIM also reveals that their intent is to beat both the US and Soviets to the moon using a rocket constructed of vibranium, eventually leading to an invulnerable space station made of the same metal. Obviously, with this book coming out in 1971, this is after the Apollo 11 missions, and, you know, man has landed on the moon. We know how the space race ended up. But because this is a flashback, and it's likely going back several years, this idea works, at least as long as you remember that fact. I don't think this portion would have made it into the story if the space race was still going on or if the Soviets had won, because that would have kind of just been a reminder of a either a, a failure or of the unknown, of the, the constant push for the space race. But I think in the existing context, this works pretty well. Here, the reveal of Batumba as the traitor could have been done a little bit better. On the page before the actual reveal, there's a fairly obvious silhouette, so it's not particularly surprising what's going on here. And of course, Batumba is basically jealous of having been in T'Challa's shadow the whole time. I am not at all surprised by this motivation, but it's not necessarily a bad justification. Given what has been going on, this actually makes a lot of sense. 
Right, Batumba has basically been sent to, I don't want to say escort, but be a an aide and a, a watcher for Black Panther, for, for T'Challa. So he's, by his own duty, forced to have been living in Black Panther's shadow. Like, that's that's his position. And it's easy to see how that would breed resentment. Broken and imprisoned by AIM, Black Panther can only face his death with dignity. His final demand is that his former friend Batumba be the one that pulls the trigger and end his life. After T'Challa's repeated taunts, however, Batumba finds himself unable to do the deed and instead decides to free his friend and make their escape. I love that T'Challa is taunting Batumba, and I think the panel layout here is just wonderful, with Black Panther's face getting bigger and bigger and bigger as he's yelling, pull it, pull it, pull it, louder and louder. I'm a little miffed at the fact that Batumba can't pull the trigger, but I think this scene works well enough, though I think it has a lot more to do with the physical reaction of Batumba. He really just sells the situation, especially the way he blows off the fact that he couldn't kill his best friend. Aim, it seems, is less forgiving than the Wakandan king, however, and they attack both T'Challa and Batumba. With his enhanced abilities as Black Panther, T'Challa is able to avoid the onslaught, but Batumba is not so lucky. With the AIM soldiers defeated, Black Panther returns to Batumba's side, just in time to comfort him in his final moments. Leaving the body behind, Black Panther returns to his kingdom a changed man. So there's some great action here at the end, with the fight between mostly Black Panther and the AIM minions. And it is a a bit of a heart-wrenching moment here at the end, when Black Panther is forced to comfort his friend in his final moments. Now, I do have to ask, though, what the hell, Black Panther? Because he literally just leaves his friend's body lying in the cave. Like, maybe he went back, you know, sent people back for it later or something. Who knows? But, like, I mean, he doesn't even bother to bury him. Like, he just leaves the body laying in the cave. That's kind of, it's kind of messed up. Back in New York, the Avengers listen to the end of the story and offer words of sympathy and comradeship to Black Panther. As he leaves the room, Black Panther informs the Avengers that Nbaza, who has been ruling Wakanda as T'Challa's regent, has died, and so Black Panther must now choose whether to return home or to stay with the Avengers. Overall, this is a pretty good book. Again, it's it's a very Black Panther-centric book, and this is a time when Black Panther himself doesn't have his own book, so if you want a Black Panther origin story, this is where it's going to happen. And I think they do a good job, A, of fitting it in, in terms of the overarching narrative of Avengers. This isn't forced and this isn't shoehorned in somewhere where it doesn't really belong. This issue fits nicely into the, the position it's in, especially we're going to get one more issue and then we're going to dive into the Kree scroll war. So it's nice to, to have a bit of a down moment before we really swing into heavy, heavy, heavy action. In this book, we get two examples of comics as a storytelling medium and how the physical structure of a comic book can be used to better tell the story. One of them is an excellent example of how a page turn is used in order to enhance the impact of a reveal. The second example isn't nearly as strong because it teases the reveal on the page before and does so in a way that gives it away in large portion. But overall, this book does a pretty good job of demonstrating how to use the visual aspects of a comic and how they can enhance the storytelling experience when done properly. 
I also love how this story brings the rest of the Avengers a little bit closer to Black Panther. He's always been a little bit distant from his teammates, and I I feel like that hurts his interactions with the team as a whole. By letting them inside his world a little bit more, he is making himself a little more vulnerable and allowing the Avengers to understand who he is and how he functions. Yes, he's still a bit of a loner and a little bit of an outsider, but he's now a loner that's a little bit closer with his friends and teammates. And that's a nice feeling. It helps this team cohesion a little bit more, especially in a time period where it's felt like there is kind of a core team and then the expanded team and that things kind of fluctuate within that. So I think it brings the expanded team a little bit tighter towards that core team. Remember, you can find us at AvengersAssembly.com. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Before we go, I do want to say a thank you to uh, several of you who have reached out to me uh, in recent months to check up on me, see how I was doing in these uncertain times in which we live. Uh, I greatly appreciate you guys doing that, and uh, I would like to extend a similar offer. Uh, If anyone feels the need to reach out, they need someone to talk to, just about anything, you know, in this time period, feel free to email us at andrew at avengersassembly.com. Next episode, we are going to be taking a look at Avengers number 88, The Summons of Cyclops. All right, hey. All right, good job, guys. Uh, let's just not come in tomorrow. Let's just take a day. Have you ever tried shawarma? There's a shawarma joint about two blocks from here. I don't know what it is, but I want to try it. <laughs>